0: Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds.
1: Every week, we bring you our pick-up articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing
0: in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm
1: Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show.
0: Hi Julia, it's episode 38 of The Pick List. Have you had a good week so far?
1: Hello, Laura. Yes, a very good week. Um, Thank you. I've uh, done another trade media masterclass earlier this week. So that's all about training PRs and how to write better press releases and, uh, and get into the trade press. And I'm also uh, working on a feature article at the moment about brands and how they can hold on to some of the growth they have seen in 2020. What have you been up to?
0: sounds fascinating I love it um yeah busy week I'm busy preparing some work for the UN food system summit and COP26 as well so doing a lot of work for the global meat industry on that and and loving it finding out so much and as you know my favourite pastime talking to people so uh, that's very enjoyable (laughs) um this week's podcast we've got a great guest haven't we We have indeed. We're joined by Bill
1: Bean. Bill is EVP Research at Shopper Intelligence. Uh, He joined us from Los Angeles, so it was a rare opportunity to get a more international perspective and find out what's been happening with shopper trends in the US. Should we start the show? Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell us listener who you are, what you do, and how you're connected to food and grocery retail?
2: Uh, well, my name is Bill Bean, and I've worked in um, shopper research for probably the last 20 years, doing research on how people shop and what that means for marketing and sales operations for or five of the largest consumer packaged goods companies in the world. I've worked for Pepsi and Kraft Foods, Colgate Palmolive, SAB Miller Brewing, for uh, Mattel Toys. So I have broad experience uh, on shopping and a lot of different food and uh, personal care products. Uh, the last few years I've worked for An an international research agency based in the UK called shopper intelligence, where I'm executive vice president of insights and research, where we actually now study and bring to the, the market data about how people shop.
1: Fantastic. And, and and you're joining us from Los Angeles um, today. Yep. So before we jump into your articles, I know our listeners will find it really interesting to just get a sense of how shopper behavior has changed in the US as a result of the pandemic. We talk a lot about this on the podcast with a focus on the UK. Could you perhaps pick out one standout change that you have seen in how US grocery shoppers behave?
2: It's really important when you consider this question to to separate out what have been artificial changes in shopping and what have been more um, central changes to shopper and consumer mindset. and so so, for example, what I mean is that as soon as the lockdowns happened last March or April, every retailer in the u s imposed, imposed specific and extensive changes in traffic flow in their stores. That wasn't a shopper choice, that was retailers deciding on their own, each one deciding on their own what they thought might be the safest way to approach retail, right? And that changed everything that we know about how assortments work, about how people move through a store, about which aisle they approach and which they don't, what they see along that journey, which has been, you know, for a hundred years, part of retail management, folklore, and science. It just changed it literally, literally over a, about a two week span. And those artificial changes really just swept through just about everything we know about shopper and and how people behave in the stores. And then those in turn created some attitudinal changes at the core of how people shop that uh, may or may not endure. And frankly, I don't think anyone knows what will last and what won't. We can see what's happened. So the two things that we focused on the most one of which i think is enduring and the other is an interesting question has been the shift to digital we we'll t- and i and and i think we'll end up given the articles we've chosen we'll end up talking about this a lot more uh, later but but here in the u.s the shift to online shopping has been massive and it happened easily five years ahead of what anyone predicted it would be, because that's what the pandemic required. We've seen increases in most categories as high as 30% of first-time online shopping. We've seen increases in sales of also in that range between 30 and 50% of just wholesale shift to online and digital and delivery and basically anything a retailer could think of to um, to drive those changes and I think that one's enduring the the one that I'm we see literally in every country we, we measure and I'm not sure it's going to change is that because of the stresses in the supply chain that created the sort of Massive and weird, what people perceived as weird out of stocks and shortages and et cetera. Um, People really opened up their brand consideration sets. So, I mean, really opened it up. Like people who used to tell us they would, they had, you know, three favorite brands and they would never try anything else. Now all of a sudden are going, oh, private label looks pretty good. It's not as bad as I thought it was. I'll try private label. Categories that categories where previously they just refused to look at those brands. Now they're going, "Yeah, that's pretty good. I'll do that." And they that happened because they had to. But who knows how many people will snap back to to the way things were before? Shoppers are driven everywhere by convenience. They talk a good game, but if you wave something that's easy and cheap in front of them, they almost always go, oh, I'll do that.
1: That's really interesting. And of course, the pick list is all about highlighting interesting articles all to do with food and drink and and grocery Mm -hmm. retail. So we do want to quiz you a little bit on your reading habits as well. How do you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry? What are some publications uh, that you enjoy reading?
2: And one of the articles I have is from a, a, a regular update publication here in the U.S. called the Robin Report, uh, which is a, a fairly regular update of of original articles and uh, curated articles about the retail industry. Maybe five or six articles a week. They're all easy reading. They they Jump out. And so I get that as a newsletter feed. I read that regularly. And then because I'm a I'm not a pure marketer i'm I'm an insights professional. I read research articles a lot. and the uh, in the US, the Advertising Research Foundation uh, publishes a lot of free articles that are, empirically scientifically based about how advertising and shopping works uh work in the uk is a similar organization warc um, and then the last one which is a just for for me if anyone is interested in sort of easily digestible but highly scientific article about how marketing and retail works the organization to go to here is called the marketing science institute msi which is a an organization of manufacturers and academics who come together have come together for over 60 years to sort of advance our knowledge of how marketing shopping and sales works both organizationally and and behaviorally and they have a regular newsletter where they just regularly um, re- uh, present synopses of re- really highly rigorous research on how marketing and retail works, but you get to see them in a paragraph or two, and those are my three go-to places.
1: Fantastic! But tell us about your first article for us.
2: Well, the first article, as as we discussed, is from the most recent edition of the Robin Report, a tale of two generations. In a recent, and it it is about how uh, similar to the question you asked me before how uh, uh, differences uh, uh, among the primary buying generations, so baby boomers, millennials, and Gen X they're called, are still driving retail, and how uh, the pandemic has placed those generations in very different positions to revive retail as it comes back post pandemic and i i chose this article because aging consumers has been a pet topic of mine for 20 years uh, because the because populations all over the world have been aging literally literally aging since the early 50s since the early 1950s And starting about 10 years ago, the marketers that I worked with only about 10 years ago, which had just always amused me no end, they started coming to me with questions that I could only summarize as, where did all these old people come from? Where did they come from? All of a sudden, they're old people buying stuff. Where did they come from? And you're going, it's, it's, this has been, this has been the aging population around the world has been Has been the longest running macro trend on everybody's chalkboard since literally the 1960s. And now all of a sudden people are going, oh my God, people are old. What has happened? In Japan, 60% of the population is over age 50. 60% of the population is over age 50. And so, and so, What makes that interesting now in the pandemic period and the the article talks about it is that in a world where in the US, for example, 70% of the wealth, 70, 70% of the wealth is in um, the baby boomer generation, people who are 50, 55 and older only 10% of the marketing dollars are directed to them. And that's because marketing and retail has always been directed at sort of two reasons, always been directed at the midpoint because they figured those are the people who have jobs and they have money to spend and that's not wrong. Um, But then the other thing, which ties back to where did all these old people come from, it's that for the longest time, the largest generation was young. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so people don't think about how they're just getting older they just they just it just it's always astounded me they just don't think about it they just think that that will always be the sweet spot of marketing and this article points out particularly post pandemic that it is not in fact the the pandemic has hit the generations very differently that young people have the lowest amount of savings and whereas pre-pandemic they were the ones who spent the most on food eating out partying bars and restaurants a huge percentage of their expenditure was devoted to those things and so a lot of the marketing and sales dollars and retail outlets were built for them but post-pandemic they don't have any money they've lost a lot of their jobs They're now saving for the first time in their lives, whereas baby boomers are the ones that have money and they're expected to spend. And as I was talking about earlier, they've increased their digital spending 30%. They're the ones who are driving food delivery at food stores. So so post-pandemic, the message is that you ignore these older people at your peril. And then the last thing I'll say about it which is not in the article, but it's my opinion, is that most advertisers and marketing don't have a clue how to talk to older people. Their, their, their impressions of being old are, are usually about 20 years behind what is actually how old older people behave. The perception of, of the boomer generation is that they're really old they never leave the couch, they never exercise, they're sick, they're weak, they don't have any money, all of which is just completely wrong.
0: The only thing I would add to that list, Bill, is they also wear beige. I think that's the <laughs> other thing that marketers think. <laughs> <Yeah>. that, uh, <laughs> they wear beige. And, the word beige and thank you so much for bringing the robin report it wasn't on my radar and i really loved the article and it it was really interesting to listen to your opinion there about marketeers not knowing how to talk to this generation i also got a sense from the article that marketeers don't necessarily think it's cool and the funky thing to be doing to be you know targeting a brand at that generation they want to be doing the the cutting edge tech that's maybe targeted at, at, at youngsters whereas as you say in the article um maps out really nicely that this is a huge area to focus on and I guess it made me reflect on the digital leap that my parents have made in the last year now that they would never shop for food online and now I don't think they'll ever probably go back to a supermarket probably because a they don't want to and b they think I can do all this other stuff with the time what was I spending twice a week bothering shopping and doing that when I if I want to pop to a local farm shop and get some nice stuff there I can but the basic stuff then uh, get online and as you say we probably would have got that shift for younger generations to digital but the opportunity now for the for the baby boomers is just phenomenal. It's huge, Julia. What's your first pick this week?
1: My first pick this week is from the spoon, and it's an article titled "Will Grocery Delivery become the next Utility?" and I thought in the week of the delivery i p o and general discussion about the future of delivery and grocery delivery and the value and profitability around de- delivery. But this was an interesting question to be asking. The argument that's being explored in this article by Chris Albrecht of The Spoon is as follows. Um, as Bill has already alluded to, we've seen a massive shift to online buying as a result of the pandemic, not just in the US, but, uh, but also here in the UK. And there's an expectation that a lot of this shift will be permanent, that many more people in countries like the UK and the US will be buying their groceries online. Some of that, a lot of that is happening through grocery retailers, of course, but there is this crop of new players getting involved in the delivery side of online grocery. And they are, as Chris describes it, offering grocery as service groceries on demand delivered in 10 or 15 minutes uh, in many cases. Uh, delivery, of, of, delivery of course is the one we're talking about this week but there is Get Here, there's Gorillas. there's GoPuff, there's Wheezy and Jiffy and Fridge No More, there's a whole range of players uh, sort of competing for that last mile and they're all attracting a quite a bit of attention and investment at the moment. Um, the model here is all about super super fast delivery taking the friction out of grocery shop And having your shopping delivered. As Chris Chris describes it, it's basically getting groceries uh, becomes like getting water to your home. Whenever you need it, you can just fire up an app and have groceries appear. And that has some potentially interesting implications for how we shop and how we think about food and groceries if you can have always-on speedy grocery delivery within 10 minutes, how does that affect the way you think about food, the way you plan your meals, for example? Is it essentially like a top-up shop but done through an app, or will it change our relationship with food more fundamentally? And I suppose for me, the article raised two questions. One around the idea of impulse buying, you know, impulse has been such a difficult category to do through e-commerce because you have that lag between wanting a product and then actually being able to have it delivered. And also because of minimum orders and basket sizes, um, you know, which all means that you're typically not really looking to buy individual bars of chocolate online. But with these new grocery uh, last mile specialists, If you're able to get your groceries delivered within 10 minutes, less time than it might take uh, to go to your local shop, do you suddenly open up a whole raft of product categories and product types to e-commerce? Essentially, does impulse become viable in an online setting with this delivery setup? And then the second question it raised for me was um, around the implications for retailers in terms of owning the customer relationship, of course, but also, I suppose, a more fundamental question of, you know, what is a retailer for in this context? I mean, we've had a lot of discussion about this idea of the, the great unbundling of the grocery store, uh, where on the one hand you have more brands selling direct to consumer cutting out the retailer, and then you have meal kit and recipe box operators competing for dinner, and you have these last mile specialists offering super speedy delivery. So a lot of the roles that retailers traditionally would have fulfilled are being uh, divided up and taken on by specialists. So in that environment, what's the point And what's the point of difference for a retailer? Um, Bill, what did you make of the article?
2: Well, I had a few reactions. I had a few reactions to it. One was um, the degree to which... Uh, the businesses in the article presented as new economy solutions to retail. If you, if you just turn your head slightly and take the tech app out of the equation, I was struck by how many of those businesses look like business my parents used that, that the article for example describes a ghost kitchen operation where where you know you've got people toiling away in industrial kitchens and then the food is just delivered to your door well that sounded a lot like catering to me only they didn't call it catering they called it some revolutionary new thing and it's clearly just a catering business with delivery right it's it It's the same business model with an app stuck in the middle of it. And so I was struck by how just the language of this article made everything look revolutionary when at its core, it was pretty old. My parents used to get grocery delivery all the time. We had a truck come by the house when I was a kid, would deliver fresh food from a truck. Like every two weeks would come by and do it that way. It became expensive, so nobody does that anymore. House calls disappeared. All of that stuff disappeared because it was expensive. So the technology, in theory, makes it cheaper, so it's all coming back. The implications that you've spun out and the article spins out and and the imagination of the future completely changes the way the human resource aspects of this business work. Right, so restaurants, retail, they're here in the US, they're all unionized. Right, so they've people have fought hard to get a working wage out of a a fairly manual job. And the ultimate, all the way down the yellow brick road, implications of any tool like this is that all of those people are cut out of the equation. Like if I go into, it was it was one of my lasting personal impressions of the pandemic here in LA is I went into my Whole Foods, my local Whole Foods store, and easily a third of the physical space in that store was devoted to delivery. Now, they'd taken out all of the food service stuff because they couldn't do that during the pandemic. All of the, they have here, in the U.S. It's it is a wonderful catering food on delivery option out of Whole Foods. The food is delicious. It's well prepared. It's well presented. All of that stuff was taken out during the pandemic. And instead, that space had become a staging area for pickers, people who just went around the store putting stuff in bags for delivery and and pickup.
0: I guess the other um, aspect of this article I was interested in if speed of service is going to become one of the drivers for purchase what else are retailers going to differentiate on what else is important and we hear a lot yes that value for money is important but we hear a lot more about sustainability and I, I know we're going to come on to that in a second but what are the differentiators for those products and then also what's left in terms of retail store themselves and you were talking there Bill about um, Whole Foods they're a masterclass in in-store theatre will we see the others and particularly in the UK we've got a, a, a real uh, challenging amount of retailers here and they normally just d- drive on price will they have to look at different aspects and, and get more theatre in store to get folks to, to stay loyal to them Laura what's your first pick for us Uh, My first pick this week is from AgriLand and uh, it's titled Research Shows that UK Grocery Shopping Habits Have Changed to Combat Food Waste. And I was really fascinated by this. It's a a new report uh, that's out from ProAgrica and it's a survey of around about a thousand shoppers uh, of uh, UK adults uh, over the last couple of months. And it's thrown up some really interesting stats I I would love to, to get your thoughts on. One of the biggest uh, stats is to that the 63% of consumers say they're more likely to shop more often in smaller quantities to avoid throwing away products and to avoid waste. That really um, goes against the data that we've seen recently, that shoppers are shopping less, they're buying more, they're going back to traditional ways. So, and, so what that uh, triggered me straight away was, that difference between what shoppers say they're going to do and what they actually do. So that was the, the first thing, because the, the, the data that we're seeing maybe doesn't fully endorse that at the moment that folks are uh, upping their frequency again. Really interesting as well that shoppers are saying that 67% uh, are buying more frozen. And we have seen that a little bit, that frozen has been a, a, a strong um Uh, beneficiary out of covid um but uh, to see such a high stat around that another stat which really made me chuckle actually 76 percent of uk shoppers would like to buy more ugly fruit and veg Uh, so which did make me wonder how the um questions were posed because um it's interesting different uh initiatives that are coming out of that uh, category in particular I see M&S over the last week or so have started to sell a, a bag of ripened bananas so you can take those home and make your banana bread so there is more and more I guess MPD coming around th- there and then one of the other stats which I thought was fascinating we're always keen to blame big corporates aren't we around food waste and it's either the government's fault or the supermarket's fault or the supply chain but this um, data shows that 42% of shoppers say that food waste uh, issues lies with them and I think it shows that we're all probably quite conscious of the fact at the end of the week or whenever you may be dropping food in the bin that's past its sell-by date or and you're thinking actually it's gone off so folks are aware of that and then the last uh, stat that I wanted to share was 32% say that they um, are interested in ethical considerations such as certification influencing their buyer decisions and I was really shocked how low that was only 32% and again it might have been down to the way that the question was asked but some fascinating stats. Bill what are your thoughts and how you know your amazing career in this space the difference between what consumers say they're going to do and actually do how big is that void?
2: Um, Well, the short answer is it's a huge void and (laughs) always has been, and you can always ask a question of a shopper to get the answer that you want. That's always been true about research. So I wondered about those while I was reading these statistics, too, Um, and not having access to the survey. I had no idea how the question was asked or what they were doing, but it did seem a little pat, I think the other thing relative to the article I recommended is is that this is one of the areas, food waste and and cause marketing where there are big differences in generations. So younger consumers and shoppers uh, uh, probably for the last 10 years or so have talked about how important ethics are to them and certain causes are to them, whereas older consumers doesn't matter as much it matters but it it doesn't matter as much And so often it's a kind of hit or miss betting betting on which cause will work for your brand whether retailer manufacturer is a hit or miss thing might work might not work it also there's and so food waste is one of those things And then the third thing which the article does which which your reaction raised a little bit, for me, but the article doesn't talk about it, is I think for every, um, for everything a shopper says that they want to do or would do or can do, there's probably five things that are being done. Um, I, I wanted to say to them, that's not the right phrase I want to use. There are probably five things that marketers are doing that counteract what they want to do? We've t- we've talked about two a lot on this this conversation speed and and price. Oh yeah, I'll I I, I food waste is a is a big issue to me. I'm going to buy smaller, but as soon as I see you know a two for one deal, I'm buying I'm buying seven avocados right. I've I've only ever in my entire life eaten one avocado in a week, but this week I'm going to buy seven of them and I'm going to eat them all.
1: The one bit that stood out to me that I thought was quite interesting was this um, interest in in ugly produce. Um, there was some quite interesting uh, an interesting study that came out a while ago that looked at the efficacy of. Uh, certain language around misshapen or ugly produce. Um, And that seemed to find that actually, I have a feeling it was US based. Um, They found that actually using the term ugly, as opposed to something slightly more diplomatic, like misshapen, did a much better job of convincing consumers that they should be buying this because there was a sort of sense that if, as the retailer, you're being this blunt about the flaws, it kind of makes you come across as, as, as more transparent and it made the shoppers feel more confident in, in choosing um, produce uh, like that, which I thought was uh, was really interesting. Bill, tell us about your second pick for
2: us. My second pick uh, is an article from the Christian Science Monitor um, that's called Why Business Startups Are Booming. And to me, this was a a really fascinating article about what's really going on in the economy recently with the pandemic in the United States that runs counter to a lot of the narrative that has been in the business press or anecdotally in people's lives. And the article points out that starting at about, Midway through the pandemic shutdown last year, like June or July, that business startups of all kinds in the United States were increased by as much as a third or 50% over the year before. And at a time when the narrative is more about how many restaurants are closing and who's in trouble and who's not right oh my oh my god were the economy's going down the trash can because of the pandemic and all while a lot of that is true many people were out of work certainly in los angeles here which is a, a premier food town uh, food city in the united states there's been lamentations for a year about people's favorite restaurants that have closed down but the data show that that others businesses other food related business including new grocery stores including new pastry shops including new restaurants of just about every kind are up about 30 percent the the applications for starting those new businesses is just gigantic. It's really just an extraordinary counter narrative to what people's anecdotal impressions have been. You know, how well any of these businesses work is still a question and always will be for any business that opens up. But when you've got, um, when times are tough, people get innovative. They do stuff they wouldn't normally do, including borrowing money to open a retail outlet, storefront retail outlet in the middle of a pandemic. It's risky, but it's also just inspiring to me. It's just inspiring.
0: It's totally inspiring, and I really like the article and the fact that there was a comment in there about female-led businesses. And we've read a lot, haven't we, over the last year that females in particular have been hit hard by the the pandemic. Be that you know the the, the um, uh, over-indexing those service jobs as we've spoken about that have have maybe been heavily affected. And some of the opportunities that they're now capitalizing on for these new food businesses and independent startups is is really inspiring and very powerful
2: and it's a uh, that that word that inspiring is like just sums up how i felt about this article there's a lot of data in it but at the end of the day which i'm always attracted to but at the end of the day it was just an inspiring message let's go figure this out let's do something new let's see if it works julia
1: what's your second pick this week My second pick this week is from Modern Retail, and it's an article titled Influencers Are Infiltrating Ghost Kitchens with the Help of Planet Hollywood's Founder. So we're continuing to look at online food delivery, and we're continuing quite um, a few of the themes that we've touched on um, in this discussion already. And this particular um, article focuses on a business called Virtual Dining Concepts, which is a ghost kitchen company operating in the U.S., specialises in partnerships with celebrities and influencers but I like what you said earlier about how ghost kitchens are potentially just a a, a new technology-led way of thinking about catering um, this is catering with some some more celebrities and influencers thrown in and um, so instead of having a famous restaurant brand licensing their menu and rep- recipes to a ghost kitchen for delivery you have names like Mariah Carey offering products for delivery uh, she's doing cookies incidentally um, it's basically as the article says the the planet hollywood business model but reinvented for the food delivery and ghost kitchen aid and one of the reasons we're seeing this this partnership between ghost kitchens and celebrities and influencers um is is, is partly because this market is hugely competitive now I thought there were some eye-popping stats in this particular article. Last July, the US had 1,500 ghost kitchens and it probably has many more now. And Euromonitor expects the global ghost kitchen market to be worth $1 trillion by 2030. So this is getting really crowded and there's a lot of pressure to differentiate and therefore having exclusive celebrity or influencer products and menus is potentially one way to do that and it's also a way to help with customer acquisition. These people have huge social media followings already and they can therefore funnel lots of people towards certain delivery apps. And one of the examples mentioned in the article is Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast is a super successful content creator uh, who has more than 55 million YouTube subscribers. In December, Mr. Beast launched 300 digital restaurants around the US called Mr. Beast Burger. He announced this on his YouTube channel, of course. Uh, The post got a gazillion views. His ordering app hit the number one spot on Apple's App Store. And to date, he has done over a million transactions. In all this, the role played by the restaurants and, of course, the people that work in the ghost kitchens and prepare these celebrity marketed meals is interesting. And as Bill has touched on a little earlier, is is controversial um, as well. You know, on the one hand, ghost kitchen operators are really keen to point out that their model has provided a lifeline for struggling restaurants, especially during COVID. On the other hand, um, there's a lot of debate around working conditions and also the power dynamics between uh, restaurants and the people who work in these kitchens and the operators and the people behind these apps. And I suppose there's a sort of wider question of, you know, what happens when you separate people from from food when you sort of break that link between who you think you're buying into and the person who's actually um, preparing the food for you. Although if we go with Bill's definition that this is really just a fancy new way to talk about catering, then I suppose it was kind of it's always been that way anyway. Bill, tell me, what did you make of this um, article and this idea of celebrity delivery meals?
2: Actually, no, I've been in lifestyle marketing a few times i worked in you know for a beer company i worked for pepsi cola you know we had we spent millions of dollars on celebrity spokespeople we sponsored bands we sponsored music i would see routinely at our national sales meetings huge names, music stars now, I would see them when they were babies because we'd identify them and we'd bring them in. I saw the Black Eyed Peas on a Sunday morning at a corporate event, for example, right? So so I've worked for companies that believe in this kind of influence, It, it, it works. It's a little different in the digital age because fame is generated differently and but the data shows in fact no one really knows how or when it will work it's just that people always believe it does and they'll work with it and some some concepts planet hollywood's a good example where you know you're you've got five or six big hollywood names and you go to the restaurant and the idea is that you sort of share in that experience of bruce willis or arnold schwarzenegger right and what's What's interesting to me about that is is that it is a physical experience in that situation, whereas this business proposition is a home experience. And so, what's what's critical to make this work is actually the food, because in the in the other on the retail side, the in-store bricks and mortar experience. It is a consumption experience in an environment that is amazing, whereas this one is a consumption experience. You're eating a Mariah Carey cookie at your in your kitchen, right? I, to me, that's just a huge gap. No matter how revolutionary the technology they talk about is.
0: I I love this article as well probably because I'm a bit of a sucker for celebrity endorsements and I always like to see what they're up to and I I couldn't decide if this was a a good thing or a bad thing but the whole Mariah Carey and cookies I just think that doesn't (laughs) naturally fit into her portfolio does it if this was Gwyneth Paltrow talking about green salads and 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 meat-free opportunities then then I think yeah that works and I get it but this feels a, a bit of a stretch and and where it sort of fell in my head is where sort of when you go into a, um, a sort of a budget pharmacy and they've got some nice perfumes behind them and they say do you want this one and it's a uh, uh, £12.99 and it's celebrity endorsed Britney Spears or whoever it may be and you think Britney's probably not wearing that perfume the same as I don't think Mariah's eating these cookies so then I think well who's the market for them as you say Bill I, I love a bit of Planet Hollywood or uh, dare I even say Bubba Gump Shrimp I, I-, I love all that stuff but you- you're right you're going because it's the the atmosphere and the yeah. atmospherics. Whereas if you're just getting a Mariah Carey cookie at home, then you're probably just getting it to take a photo and put on your own Insta feed. It's probably not for the 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 taste or the enjoyment unless unless it's the best cookie you've ever tasted. And I'm I'm guessing Mariah's probably not an expert in that sort of area. Laura, what's your second pick for us? Uh, my second pick this week is from the grocer, and it's Mars Pet Care launches Lovebug dry cat food range made from insects, and really like this. Um, and to give you a bit of background, this is a it launched by Mars just this week, and it's um, a new brand exclu- exclusively from insects. Um, the Lovebug brand is made uh, from black soldier fly larvae, and it's totally um, dry food. It also has some amino acids in it, and has a vegan coating um, for uh, for your cat. It's made in Germany but sold uh, exclusively in the UK and it's the first to market over here. And what I really liked about it was a couple of things. First of all the branding is really impactful and it always makes me think back to when uh, Julie and I talked specifically about the meat industry and how we've started got a long way to go on branding and how the meat-free market is funky and impactful I thought they've done it again on pet food looks really engaging and then there's quite a little uh, quite a bit about sustainability in the article as well it talks about um, the uh, insects taking up less space than uh, beef production for example it talks about the production system here being uh, used uh, from renewable energy And it also talks about how cats thrive on this product and cats will be happy. And then it also goes on to talk about pet parents, which I really liked because in the UK alone, we've got 3 million more pets uh, in the last 12 months. So a lot of folks will be thinking they're new pet parents and uh, making owners happy with good environmental choices. And I thought it's it's a disruptor. It's interesting for maybe for, for, for cat parents that are, that are maybe not meat eaters themselves or or um, more focusing on sustainability. But I guess the question in my mind it raised, and unsurprisingly working so much in, in the meat industry, at what point does a, an insect and a bug become an animal? And in terms of will we see the next brand extension of this being and the welfare of the um black soldier fly larvae and they're in i don't know in this sort of environment and you know that that will become as equally important further down the line because i i don't know it's i I think there may be an animal too and that that will become important and that transparency on the supply chain am i being crazy bill is there a lot of uh in LA, you've got, a, um, I'm guessing, some avant-garde uh, uh, pet parents. Are they feeding their cats insects?
2: Um, short answer, no, but it has nothing to do with desirability. I love this article for the for the branding reasons. I thought Lovebug was a great name for this. But it's also... Um, Insects are not an approved protein ingredient for uh, pets in the U.S. They're they're approved for reptile feeding. You can feed a, a, a your iguana something that's based on on fly protein, but nothing else. It's it's approved for treats because the for and there's there's one or two brands that use. Um, the black soldier fly larvae, which which by the way is a magical and astounding sustainability ingredient. It it just really is a fascinating kind of approach to this. Um, but uh, different regulations in the U.S. So there, everyone is ex- kind of experimenting in the pet food industry. Um, but it's it's in fact illegal to market currently a a full-up pet food made from insect source protein and it's only approved for certain farm and reptile applications so we don't see it but but i like it again i think the sustainability issue of this is just remarkable everything lines up really neatly um, for. This product, whether or not it, that'll be a motivating factor for consumers, I don't, I don't know. I
1: I thought the article was really interesting as well, and and I was fascinated to see that we are now seeing um, a, a commercial launch like this, and from a really big brand name as well. And we've talked about uh, the potential around insect protein quite a few times on the podcast, and I think it's it's so interesting that you know pet food is potentially the way to get this into the mainstream, because there are obviously still quite a few barriers Um, if you're trying to get Western consumers in particular to sort of buy into the idea of, of insect protein. There's some interesting uh, startups that are trying to be really innovative and in are Looking at using in insects um, as an ingredient, but, but the barriers, um, I think, are, are still quite considerable. There's always that danger that it's just a little bit too much in that novelty niche. Um, whereas I think with, with pet food, uh, you potentially don't have uh, quite the same issues. And, you know, pet parents are also uh, increasingly sustainability minded. So, um, yeah, I think a really, really interesting way to see um, a, a big mainstream name embrace insect protein.
2: And I don't. I. I. The other thing that was, and it'll just interesting to see how it plays out is is that sustainability actually wasn't part of the marketing proposition very much. When you read through the article, they only mention it a little bit. Where, where in fact, economically, and you know, ecologically, philosophically, it's actually a really big deal on this product. It's a huge deal. The. Uh, 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 a fly farm like this is almost 50% more productive in producing protein than any meat agricultural operation. And you do it in a, you know, you do it in a plastic bin the size of my desk, basically. It's 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 just a, a remarkable algebra. And yet they're not marketing it that way. It's just a, almost an afterthought. So I worked in pet food for a little while. Cats are cats are interesting. They're they're what's called obligate carnivores. They really don't eat much else but meat. But they also require an amino acid that typically is not present in most protein sources, which is taurine. And which by the way is one of the main ingredients of most energy drinks. Mm-hmm. But but cats require it. And the black fly larvae make it. So it's a complete protein And They'll they'll supplement this one's supplemented with taurine as well, but but unlike fish or or meat, the flies produce it. So it just ends up again just being a remarkably efficient cat food.
1: Bill, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest.
2: My pleasure. It turned out to be a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
1: That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Pick List.
0: Thanks again for listening. See you next time.